Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Spark. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them across the UK. Today we'll hear tales of escape. In aid of the charity Refuge Aid. Here's the host of the night, Gigi. I'm 10 years old and I'm sitting in an airplane next to my dad. And my eight-year-old brother is across the aisle sitting next to my mom and we're waiting to take off. It's a Scandinavian airline. And uh, I keep looking up at my dad next to me and trying to figure out what's gonna happen at the other end of that flight and why we were leaving. And so we were sitting there at the airport in Cairo going to America, to New York. I kept wondering, what, why were we here? And, and looking to my dad for a clue. And it's because a year before then, the entire year before that flight, there was a, a book on our coffee table in Cairo called USA. But because I couldn't speak English at the time and I was going to a German school, it was this mysterious book called USA <laughs> sitting on our coffee table that my parents consulted every time they would talk and whisper about um, where we were gonna go within a year once, once they got their green cards. And uh, for the whole year, my brother and I, starting from age seven and nine, were campaigning and plotting how we're gonna foil their plan to leave and how we're gonna actually get to stay and all the things we, we would do, like pull tantrums, hide so that they couldn't find us, get our, the rest of our family to conspire with us to, to keep them from going. But no matter what we did that year, we still were there on that flight. It didn't work. There I was wondering, why did you have to rip me away from my grandma and my cousins and my school and why do we have to deal with snow? What are we gonna do when I start meeting people at school and I can't speak English? And uh, I looked up at my dad and he wasn't looking at me for some reason and was staring straight ahead and he just kind of then looked down and closed his eyes and silently crossed himself. And then I thought, whoa my dad doesn't really know what's going to happen on the other end of that flight. Welcome to another sparkling night of Spark London. I'm especially happy to be here, not only because I get to host, but because I am British. I, uh, 
I, can you tell from my accent, I've been British for 15 days. I sound British, right? Right, yeah, I do, I do sound British. Anyway, I, I feel this tremendous pressure on my tongue ever since that happened. I mean, I've felt it for the last six years, but it's sort of like something is pushing my tongue to say words differently and to use different words and to say oi in a totally different context. You know, like I'm used to the New Yorkish, like oi, not another bagel. Uh, but to say like oi, what the hell are you doing? Uh, you know, st- I, the other day I found myself talking kind of like Nicola Sturgeon because I talked, I, I heard her talking on TV about uh, Brexit from the EU. And I, like, I talked like that for like an hour. But anyway, as you've heard from my story, I was immigrating, I, I'm fortunate enough to be immigrating not once but twice, once to America and then once here. And under the best of circumstances, legally, warmly, in the plane, with my parents, uh, with something waiting for me on the other end, with, with uh, education and money and uh, great possibilities and a, and a welcome wagon at the other end. I cannot imagine how exponentially harder it would have been had I been one of the migrants that we're witnessing crossing Europe right now. And so without further ado, let me introduce our first storyteller, Hassan. Ahlan wa sahlan. Assalamu alaikum. Hey guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, my name is Hassan. I'm 28 years old and uh, I'm Syrian from Damascus, the capital. And uh, I was really excited when I got invited to this event and I found out that it's about escape because this is something that I've been doing my entire life. <laughs> Ever since I was born in Saudi uh, in Riyadh and we had to escape uh, Saddam Hussein bombing Riyadh uh, through uh, the desert to Jeddah and then back to Syria where we settled, we had a normal life, happy life. And uh, a lot of us Syrians uh, didn't travel a lot because we couldn't afford it and because we need visas to go to the bathroom. <laughs> lived a very normal, happy life, had everything, a job, a family, a car, and a girlfriend, and I couldn't wish for anything else, and I was content I, uh, until things got really bad, and uh, like you guys saw on the news, but uh, it was a lot worse than what you guys have witnessed uh, watching Al BBC or Al Jazeera, coming from someone who has kind of lived the whole thing. I was an English teacher back home. And I loved my job. And I, uh, when it started, my students would ask me about what's going on. And I couldn't, I couldn't really reply because I didn't want to get into politics in a classroom because that's, that's not the kind of establishment where you want to address politics. Protested with other people and did everything right, filmed protests, sent them outside. But that was a, that was a really big crime back home. And uh, until things got really bad for me and uh, I got caught in a protest and I was thrown in a jail forgotten for a while. Uh, I, 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 don't really want, I, don't really talk, I don't really like talking about those days because they really get to me and it really drains me. But uh, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll talk about the full half of the cup where the fact that I managed to get out, obviously I'm here. I left with a great spirit but not a so great body because uh, I've had like almost every bone of my body broken. And uh, I still bear the scars of what they've done back home to me. And really, like, I don't think that, like, I can forget about it, but I can still look at the scars and remember what happened back home. 
especially that it's my own police, which is used to put, used, supposed to protect me, is doing this for me. I traveled through the Middle East to several countries. To be honest, I didn't want to become a refugee. <laughs> with, the, with all due respect to refugees, but I just didn't want, I didn't want to be one. I just refused the fact of being a refugee until I found myself forced to do this. And uh, I watched all those boats going through the agency, and I was like, I have to do it. It's my only choice. Funny thing that I've, back home when I was a teenager, I watched a Euro trip, and I've always wanted to go on a Euro trip. Not exactly the, the kind of Euro trip I, I went on, but, uh, <laughs> but it, was, uh, it was really difficult to do it, to be honest. It took me 87 days, 87 from Izmir to London, and uh, sorry. First time didn't go so well on that rubber boat because they put 63 of us and the boat eventually went down and uh, we had 13 children and a couple of women on that boat and uh, I'm, I can have it. My best friend and my cousin who traveled with me, they can have it, we're young men. But to see that in children, to see that the children are actually crying on a boat and pleading for you to help and call whoever you can call to help them, that's like kind of hard. It's really hard. And to see that, it actually, there was a pregnant lady with us who had a miscarriage on that boat because uh, we were all in the water until the Turkish Coast Guards showed up and rescued us. We were picked up and taken back to Turkey, and the next day we tried again. And uh, luckily, the smuggler, he kept his word. We were only 40 people on that boat, which ideally, by the way, doesn't take more than 10 people if we, like, we were to take it. 40 people on a boat, everything was fine, everything was okay. We are in the water, crossing from Izmir to, Metal to Lesbos, until uh, we saw the first glimpse of Europe as three masked men on our own army boat beating the hell out of the engine and stealing the fuel tank and leaving us in met water. That was our first encounter with Europe. Not a great one indeed. And expectation didn't align with reality because expectation was like we're going to get there, everything will be sorted out, don't worry about it. But we were beaten in the water and we were left met water for eight hours until we had to swim to the island. We got to the island and then we made our way through to Athens and from Athens to Saloniki to Macedonia. We were all cramped in a, in a train in Macedonia and we were not allowed to leave the train. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, sorry, on a side note, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a freak about watching like World War II documentaries and shit and sorry, and, and like <laughs> living that actually took me back to the World War II and I, especially when we, were, we had to throw the water bottles out of the windows of that train and people would like run, catch the water bottle and fill it out with water and give it back to us. And that's where like we, our faith, my faith in humanity started restoring because that was kind of cool from Europe to give me a bottle of water. We carried on to Serbia. From Serbia, we were smuggled by the Serbian mafia through Hungary. And those people were really cool. I mean, aside from the fact that they were human traffickers, but they were like, they were professional. <laughs> Our smuggler was called Marco, and I've never seen such a humongous person in my life. I swear to God, he's like humongous. And he was like, I w I'm, in the, I'm in Belgrade talking to him and making a deal. And that guy is like looking at me, he was like, brother, don't worry, brother, I got you, brother. We take you, brother, we put you in the van, brother, and we take you to Vienna. I'm suddenly a brother with a Serbian mafia dude, and that was cool. <laughs> uh, the brother didn't keep his word, and uh, he put 26 of us in a van. Uh, the back door of the van broke. There was an old man who was holding the van the whole way. There were three children who fainted because there was like, it was impossible to breathe, I swear to God. And we eventually had to improvise, take our t-shirts off and like wave them, try to wave them inside and splash water on each of us so we can breathe. 
the driver was drunk, and that's what they do intentionally, because if they get caught, they will get a less sentence, because he'll be like, yeah, I got drunk, and they put him in my van, I don't know who they are. And we got to Vienna, and again, no one died, which is actually a privilege when we were doing it, and like things get really, really rough. I look at my friend and my cousin, I'm like, listen guys, we didn't die, so we're good. We got to Vienna, and uh, we had nothing on us. I still remember my T-shirt, my shorts, and my Nike runners, and that's it. I had nothing. I packed 27 years of my life in a rack sack, and then I lost it in the agency when we went down the first time. But it was okay. I was like, we can do it. We'll fine. And we made it to Calais. And when we made it to Calais, I was like, yeah, a couple of days, dudes, and we're in. A couple of days stretched into 60 days in the jungle. And that was rough, that was hard. Because when I say 60 days, I'm talking about every day when you're walking two hours to the train station, jumping over four or five fences, and then jumping on the train, and then getting caught, and then being sent back to the jungle. And I'm talking about walking to the Belgian uh, border, and then the smugglers would take you, put you in a lorry for 12 hours, and then the lorry would drive to the port, and then getting caught again. The amount of disappointment that we would get every single day was a lot to handle. It's physically, like, it, it, it physically drains you to, do, to go all of those things. And I wouldn't have said that if I didn't experience it. And again, I, would, did, I, I didn't mind. But for me to be in a lorry with a family, and the mom is trying to, uh, her, ba- her, her like, two-year-old son is crying, and she's trying like, to muffle his mouth and, like, so he won't cry, and then the lorry driver were to find out was kind of really hard for me to witness. Because I don't think kids should live that. I think like, kids should be drawing and laughing and running around and playing. They shouldn't be subjects to human trafficking. But unfortunately, when the war turned a blind eye on us Syrians, and by when the war, I don't, say, I don't mean you guys, I mean the governments, they turned a blind eye on us, we had to, we had to do this. We really had to. I don't want to talk politics, but I was, they were trying really hard to keep us back in Calais. We don't want you guys. Like You're the bad ones. You're the Muslim immigrants. You're evil, you're whatever, and that's like what, not you again, but like a lot of people say, but we're actually not. Because I wasn't welcome, like, I, we, I was like kept in Calais for 60 days, and you're not welcome here. You should stay there where you are. But when I got here, I felt very welcome. And I've been invited to churches and mosques and universities and fundraisers and parties, and people are like, just come and talk, dude. And I'm like, sure. I've been to the House of Parliament more than 10 times. I, I like hang out with lords now, I swear to God. That's like, that's super awesome. Like I'm, I've studied English literature and I've like, I've like, dude, I'm in the house of lords, with lords. Last week I was with Jude Law, handing a, I'm not lying. It's on my Facebook page. We, I went with Jude Law with a couple of famous people and we, we handed David Cameron a letter to stop demolishing the camp because people are there, families and kids and women who should like, they should have at least some sort of a home for a while until they figure it out. Ever since I've been here, I stayed the first month with a, with a lady who invited me to stay with her. She's British, she's an atheist. And her entire street, they're like full of Christians and Sikhs and Jews and like, I get dinner invitation from them. That was the first month in London, in, in the UK. Everyone was like, hey, you're like, man, just come. Do, like, dinner, whatever. I showed up here with nothing on me. She posted, the lady I'm staying with, she posted on Facebook, my friend is here, he just came from Calais, we need like, some stuff. We had a pile of clothes, and I, I have clothes for like two generations now. <laughs> and that made me feel great, because now, one day if I have kids, I'm going to be like, 
forget about everything they've taught us back home about the enemy and the, the friend and that's that's all bullshit sorry because we're all like we're all the same and we're all no matter where you come from no matter what your faith and your language and no matter what kind of food you eat you're, we're all the same and I hope I hope I can pass that to my children one day you told me about the last line of my story this was a true story thank you <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> You forgot the part about how you actually flew over here as a... You have, oh, yeah. Okay, okay then. <laughs> well, that's the, the coolest part of the story, so, <laughs> which I forgot to mention, unfortunately. Uh, so 60 days in Calais, the, I've been into more than... I have a phobia from lorries because I've been more than like 30 or 40 lorries, and I've jumped on the train a lot until like some, one of my friends was like, dude, you can speak English, you look semi-European, so just get a fake passport and travel with it. And I did. I got this fake Bulgarian passport, and it took me four days to memorize my fake name, which was Tracio Anatoliev Trajanov. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I made it. I like went to Brussels Airport. I went to British Airways. I was like, I want to do this right. I got myself a ticket, a one-way ticket, and I just slipped through. And I was on the plane, and the happiest moment of my life after 87 days of doing this was when the pilot was like, "Welcome to London." I was like, "Holy." Like that's 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 kind of that's great, and I was at the airport, and <laughs> the funnier the funniest part of about getting into the UK with a fake passport is when I reached the border control and I had no idea what to say. How do I explain to this guy that I just came from Turkey? Took me 87 days to get here on a fake passport and I had zero documents on me. And when I said that, he was like, "You need to come with me, sir." <laughs> and I'm here now. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Hassan. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode couldn't have been possible without Aid. So we're asking you, our listeners, for the first time ever, to dip your hands into your pockets. 
If you've been affected by the stories in this podcast, please donate a few pounds, a few dollars, to those in need. Please help us to help others fleeing war and persecution by going to stories.co.uk slash donate. Now back to the show. Shall I teach you one Arabic word so you, you can thank Hassan in Arabic? It is um, shukran. Can you repeat it? Shukran, which means thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, just to kind of mix it up a bit, uh, I've asked people, or we've asked people to fill out these flyers about exit, quick exits and getaways. When have you had to make a quick exit and why? There are many places on Oxford Street that can compete for the title of scariest shop to be in. Boots might not sound like a top contender until Boxing Day last year, which caught me feeling terrified, half through makeup application, as a fight started between two grown men at the perfume counter. All the displays started falling like dominoes. To this day, I wonder how big that discount was at the perfume counter. Okay, thank you very much. At the tender age of 16, my best friend and I got into a sticky situation. It was an August night following the entire day of Bacchanal and booze at the Notting Hill Carnival. And we ended up drunk as skunks outside Earl's Court tube station, unable to see straight, let alone think clearly. We were picked up by two men in their mid-30s and ended up in their flat, kissing in the same small bedroom. We were instructed to kiss one another, which we did, giggling. I remember the flash of my friend's braces in the dark, giving me a sudden feeling of unease. And that was when it, you had a feeling of unease. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> And eventually, I ran to the bathroom to see if there was an escape route. I took so long in there that my friend came to check on me, and I managed to slur that I was scared before we ran out of the front door. I threw up under a car. This is unfortunately also the story of my first kiss. (laughs) Great first kiss story. And our next storyteller is Anna. Hello. See, I am so nervous, so apologies for my nerves. (laughs) Five months ago, I met the most incredible group of people who came together to do our first medical relief trip to an island called Lesvos in Greece. We were extremely lucky. We met some incredible doctors and nurses and had some connections that allowed us to access a large amount of medication. When we arrived on the island, from people we'd spoke to, we assumed that there was a facility that our doctors would be able to work out of and treat patients. Except when we got there, there wasn't anything. Moria, as a detention facility, has a capacity of about 700 to 1,000 people. At the height, in the last six months, it's seen 10,000 on an average day. When you arrive to Moria, you are given a numbered ticket. So people may arrive on the coast of the Aegean and then either walk or, if lucky, can get a bus to the camp and are then given a ticket and told, don't worry, wait here, and when your ticket's number's called, you'll have access to services. Unfortunately, what they don't tell you is that it can take five to seven days to have access to those services. And in the meantime, when we were there, there was no alternative. There isn't an official waiting area. It is just a 
horrible hill that's got some awful nicknames and you're left. So we had to think on our feet and the amazing team that I was lucky to work with decided the best way we could deal with this is to get some semi-permanent structure and start treating people. The medical need is so vast. There is every type of illness, injury and horrific wounds that you see. So we did that. Um, we had a female triage tent, a male triage tent and a paediatric triage tent. They worked crazy shifts, 16 hours, and we split our team so we could provide 24-7 care. It wasn't ever going to be enough, and it wasn't enough, but they did the best that they could. And then we were only there for two weeks. The night before we were due to come back to London, Luke, Kevin, and Evan, who were the three most senior members of the team, two surgeons and a paediatrician, burst into our bedroom at 3.30 a.m., drenched through, and two of them were in tears. And these are big guys. These are like ex-military beefcakes. One's got seven kids and he doesn't bat an eyelid. And they, they were crying. A storm had hit. It was 50 mile an hour winds and torrential rain. And Moria is placed on a hill. So on top of the fact that there's no resources, and when I mean no resources, there's nothing. At that point, people would arrive wet, cold, in an awful state, and there aren't blankets, there aren't tents, there, there, it, it's, there's mud. And so this storm had hit, and it was a complete washout. I grabbed Nikki, who's one of the nurses, and we got down there as quickly as we could and just stuffed all of our suitcases, everything, everything we had into a car. And um, we were never prepared for, for what we arrived to. One of our tents was completely ruined and the other one half down. And thanks to some amazing Afghani guys who were just, they worked like 28 hours without stopping. Um, we managed to get two tents up and the most vulnerable families into one. The day before, we had managed to get our hands on a hundred of the flimsiest pop-up tents you've ever seen and put them up so people may have somewhere to sleep that night. And every single one of them was waterlogged. The boys had been pulling people from the tents for hours. I can't tell you, I can't stand here and tell you, and I don't have any right to tell you how horrific it is to listen to babies crying that are freezing cold and soaking wet and have absolutely no way of warming them, of giving their parents any sort of soothing reaction. No food, no clothes, nothing. There isn't even a shelter to put over them. And so we just did the best that we could. We tried to keep the most sick people under our tent and it carried on like that for 16 hours. At one point, one moment I'll never forget, in the dirt was a bottle of water and a little boy, no, no more than two, toddling, launched himself at this bottle of water. And his mother and I scooped him up, dried him off, and then tried to find a, a decent bottle of water for him to have a drink. And as he sat there, gulping it down, we were both in tears. And I just thought, Anna, shut up. Who are you to cry? Like, who, who am I? to stand there and cry. In five hours later, I was back in Heathrow Airport, safe and sound, and the situation stayed the same. And unfortunately, the situation is similar. Thanks to incredible work of grassroots organizations and volunteers, there are a small number of amenities being provided, but it is a constant struggle. And although the media does an incredible 
presentation of how important volunteers have been, please don't think that things have got better. Last week, the authorities cut off the water supply to a volunteer kitchen that supplies meals every day for over 3,000 people. And so, as it is now, we'll continue to do what we're anything we can and how we're trying to help because people will continue to fall through the gaps and Europe will continue to neglect those that it should be caring for. Thanks for listening to this Spark special in support of Aid. They've told their stories. Now go to stories.co.uk slash donate and give what you can. That's stories.co.uk slash donate. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 